0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today, I'm speaking with Crystal Ung, founder and CEO of Bowl Cut, the sauce brand named after everyone's favorite 80s haircut, building next-generation Asian American flavor. Known for their super fun swag, delicious small batch sauces, and generally great vibes, Bowl Cut is reimagining childhood staples of Crystal's past with all natural ingredients and zero additives. It's the culmination of over 15 years of Crystal's experience working in fashion and consumer products for brands such as Disney, J. Crew, and Saks. Bull Cuts available online and nationwide at Sur La
2: Table. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to chat.
1: I'm so excited you're here because, you know, I'm a brand junkie a little bit, like I... I'm one of those people who judges a book by its cover, and <laughs> that's what a brand I, is there for. <laughs> I know, and i'm I'm like, i am I'm all in, you know, And I remember seeing you. It must have been I wasn't at Expo. oh, I get maybe i I don't know. I was a trade some trade show a couple of years ago, and I just remember being like, Ah, oh, cool, you know, like, wish I had that coolness, you know? Um, (laughs) so you've been, you've been doing this for a little bit. And so it was, it, you know, it's fun to have you here and to get to talk about it because something's definitely really right about what you're doing.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah. It feels like I've been doing this for a really long time, but at the same time, it feels like it's just the beginning.
1: Yeah. I know. It's so funny because every, Every couple, like every six months, I'm like, everything until now is prologue. Mm-hmm. Now the real thing starts. <laughs> exactly. You know, exactly. and then my team is like, but wait, is that, was that prologue or is this prologue? Is this now prologue or, you know, is this the real thing, you know? And I don't know. I think that probably my guess is that, with you know, we we work in such a crazy business that, you know, it is. It's all just constantly new. And when we probably as founders get to the point where it feels the same this year as it felt last year, my guess is that we'll probably be out.
2: <laughs> right. You know? Exactly. Because the excitement keeps us going for sure. Yeah.
1: yeah, And that's for like the really professional operators. I mean, I, I'm not saying you're not, I'm saying I am probably Eh, We'll see. We'll see how it goes. All right. So I know, you know, there's a really great story here. Your story is amazing. I believe you grew up um, in a restaurant family. You are not the first um, founder that I've interviewed, whether it's a general store, a bodega, a family restaurant. Um, There are a lot of founders in the food space that have these very, very formative food experiences. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about yours.
2: Yeah. And you're exactly right. It was such a formative time in my life and feels full circle now that I'm in the food business. Um, Yeah. So it was kind of your typical family owned takeout spot in town, uh, Chinese food. I started working there when I was about eight years old Mm-hmm. I like to say that my saucier day started back then um, because in fact, I was making a version of our chili crisps then in the kitchen oh, and amazing. also scooping them into those little container cups that go mm-hmm. um, you know, with the takeout food. And yeah. what made it so special was, of course, working alongside my father, but also seeing that kind of extra care he yeah. put into ensuring the best quality um, really has stuck with me and really one of the, the kind of key ways we operate as a business. Um, you know, just yeah. to give you an example, during the slow period, every day from 3 to 5 p.m., everything was cooked to order, which operationally wow. is insane. Yeah. So he literally, yeah. every single order would make multiple entrees for each order.
0: All of our egg
2: rolls, our wontons, everything were made fresh on site. All of our vegetables um, were fresh, prepped on site. Um, And this really, again, instilled in me this commitment to quality and making sure that everyone um, gets to kind of experience food and quality the way that we would, you know, as as a family. Yeah. It sounds amazing. So where was the What town was it? It was in San Diego, California, which is where I spent my childhood.
1: Yeah. No, it's, it's, you know, this is, it, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. Right. And, and yet you did not want to carry on the family restaurant. You wanted to do something different. How did, what happened there? Like what, you know, what, I guess, what was your decision making? Like was it sort of like, okay, now I get to sort of go out into the world and try something new? Was there ever a thought, I'm going to keep this going or I'm going to take this forward in some way? You know, what I guess what was kind of like your late adolescent brain thinking?
2: Yeah, Um well, I think like any immigrant parents, um, mm-hmm. my dad definitely just wanted a different life for me. Um, yeah. You know, the business was a way of survival Keeping, for us right. and okay. it, it is a very hard business. There are no days off, um, thin margins, and yeah. it's all consuming. And yeah. so um, education was always a huge priority and that's what I focused on and was encouraged to do other things other than food. So of course, back then, and even in early in my career, I really didn't think I'd be doing anything related to food. Um, And slowly as my career progressed, I felt really pulled to things that felt more aligned with my interests and what I'm good at. Mm. And, you know, this is really my dream job. Um, And I think if you could distill what I currently am doing as CEO of this business, it's this amazing opportunity to kind of think, innovate, and execute in terms of possibilities, right? Like this kind of creativity that's not creativity in the traditional sense, Mm -hmm. being able to ask how things can be better, challenging the status quo, Um, and this kind of kind of thinking and freedom to make decisions I feel is so aligned with, um, the role and skills of an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah. It's so funny that you're saying that because I was just on LinkedIn and someone DM'd me about like an innovation conference in the spring. And if I wanted to, you know, speak and I wrote back and I'm like, Hey, like, sorry, thank you. I'm not in, in tech. You know, I don't know. Like, I don't know (laughs) how to get my name. And she's like, no, no, no. Like, we're just talking about like innovation and your products are really innovative and the content that you're making is, is innovative. I'm like, oh yeah. Like it is like, you know, we know that when we're sitting with our teams and we know that what we're making anytime you're taking something that didn't exist before and you're making it better or you're creating something that literally out of thin air is innovation. Um, but you know, the term I think has been so, I'm always like, but this is so, it's like too earthy to be innovative. You know, it's like we're making food and with like ingredients that have, grown in the land, you know, (laughs) it feels like, and yet in a lot of ways it is more, it's, it's very innovative, right? I mean, it's.
2: But that's such a good call out. Like Mm -hmm. innovation is tied to technology and that's Mm -hmm. really where I think most people's minds go. Totally. um, Is tech. And, but you're right. What we are creating, um, is, Innovative and also so important, right? I mm-hmm. mean, health is so important in nutrition, and yeah. ultimately, that's what we're trying to do is to address the nutrition part of of food and sauces.
1: Yep. Yeah.
2: So, what
1: did you end up? I mean, I, I know that you know, like we said in your bio, you know, you were working for Disney and J Crew and Sachs, like how what was the what was the journey there oh yeah you know?
2: it it was a wild journey, um, so I'm a little bit older as a founder, I feel like oh my the gosh, founding the founder I'm world tends to be quite young yeah, um, and when I was in college, there was no entrepreneurship, there was no startup anything. Yeah. Facebook had just launched um as a startup. And Mm -hmm. so I knew that I wanted to ultimately have a business, but I had no idea how or what that would look like or what kind of business. Um, and again, back then there, there weren't any kind of programs or any internships, anything related to that. Right. Right. And, um, and so there were pretty set career paths then. And Mm -hmm. I thought I would go to law school and ended Mm -hmm. up, working at a law firm as my first job out of college and quickly realized that wasn't for me. Um, Mm -hmm. So really kind of started this path of exploration, like, what is it that I want to do? What's really meaningful and aligned with what my strengths are? And all of that is so uh, qualitative. Um, Mm -hmm. It's so hard to figure that out as a young person, right? And i never pursued anything creatively either. And so there were just so many open questions. Um, and so I kind of bounced from working in a law firm, realized I'm not going to law school and not becoming a lawyer, uh, to working in corporate real estate at Disney. Um, mm. and that was an amazing experience and really actually loved working at Disney. It didn't feel, I mean, right now also, I mean, it's,
1: it's a, blue chip company Mm -hmm. you know there is something to be said for these companies that somehow find a way to be innovative and also you know profitable (laughs) you know and it's funny because I don't know I was just listening to a pivot podcast about Disney and um you know Bob Iger and and they were just talking about how the the thing about Disney is like you know okay, yeah, you get these kids and they love the content and they love the shows and they love the movies and they love the characters. But what really sort of seals the deal is going and this embodiment and this experiential, just sort of like whole body, you know, swimming in the brand to your point, you know? And, um, I were you looking at real estate,
2: What were you looking at real estate for? (laughs) (laughs) It's a good question. So technically we were under corporate finance and Mm -hmm. um, my role specifically was portfolio management. So it was more about um, keeping all of the kind of data and reporting for all of the property globally. Mm -hmm. So that included properties in Hong Kong, for example. Um, And we worked very closely with other teams within the real estate group. So there was design and delivery, um, there was account management, and they're more about acquisitions and acquiring properties. We all work together um, to really execute on the strategy of the real estate portfolio, which was huge, Mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of very smart people that work at Disney. And what was striking was just how nice everyone Mm -hmm. is at Disney. Like it's definitely part of the culture. Um, Yeah. You can feel
1: that the brand, I mean, it wouldn't work. I was, I think, I mean, just as an aside, I'm sorry, but I was at Disney with my kids. I don't know if you remember this. It was like 18 years, 18 years, six, I don't know, 17 years ago. And Tigger like had like a meltdown and like got angry at a kid and like the whole, like everyone. Oh "Oh, no, Tigger attacked. Yeah. Like we were there. Um, that just goes to show how old I was when my kids were little, but, um, (laughs) that's the thing. It's like the brand goes all the way through you know, and I mean, it is, I know we're not really here to talk about Disney, but it is one of those things where you, you know, you, you suspend belief when you go there and you drink the Kool-Aid and if it cracks a little bit, it doesn't work anymore. And so, you know, and they've held that for what, 75 years or something. So it makes sense that, I mean, culture and team are, are very linked to brand,
2: right? 100%. So and important. yeah.
1: Um, and so, J. Crew and Saks—were you doing the same stuff there?
2: No. So, um, I actually ended up going to business school at NYU, um, mm-hmm. and while I was there, was making um, an industry switch. And again, I knew I wanted to start a business of some kind, but I was also very interested in fashion, um, mm. which is why I needed to be in New York and mm-hmm. wanted to work at a lot of different brands to again better understand. Where I would fit in um, and where, you know, functionally, what did I want to do? And just to help answer a lot of questions and help navigate my career um, and take it to the next step. So Mm -hmm. while I was in New York, um, I was there for about eight years and worked across um, a lot of different companies and brands. Um, So while I was in business school, worked at Amazon and Chanel, and um, and then post school was at J Crew and Sachs and the CFDA. Um, so I, I've seen the quite a varied spectrum mm-hmm. of not only growth stages, but also um, you know a more of a technology commodities driven brand, um, all the way to mm-hmm. a luxury. Heritage brand, and it's right. been so fascinating to to see how all of these companies operate differently and the yeah. different types of cultures.
1: And then, so I guess that's the big question that I always want to get to with people who have really cool experiences before they found their companies. I would imagine that there are some sort of pillars or themes or just kind of you know concepts that you have said yep i'm going to take that and i'm going to infuse it into whatever i build and likewise they're probably like hmm nope not going to bring that one yeah. into my into, into my you know sweet thing that i'm building like what are some of the things that you gathered like the big sort of this is what i'm really glad i learned this at these big companies And here's how they're manifesting themselves in bowl cut.
2: Yeah, such a great question. Um, There are definitely specific operating principles that Mm -hmm. I've picked up on throughout my career and that shape how we do business and how we operate internally. So I would say number one, going back to my restaurant kid days, is this commitment to quality and care, Mm -hmm. right? Like I observed that firsthand. and. Um, that's how we approach everything we do. Um, there, we, there's a, a phrase that we like to, to say, there's no shortcuts, just full mm-hmm. cuts. <laughs> and it's a key component um, of our kind of philosophy. And I saw this obsession with quality again when I worked at Crew. you know, when Mickey Drexler and Jenna Lyons were Mm -hmm. still at the helm, the brands they curated, the way they talked about craftsmanship and techniques and fabrics. um, There was just so much passion and care there. And that really left a lasting impression on me. Yep. Um, And, you know, as it relates to values and culture, Um, Mm -hmm. having worked at a lot of these different organizations, culture, you know, it's really, it's created early on and it really impacts how work is done and the day-to-day experience um, of work, right? And Mm -hmm. to your point, it really, it really does affect the brand. Um, And I've thought a lot about this and wanting to create a vibrant work culture that is both challenging and fast paced, but enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And I think it really starts with how you find and bring on talent, right? So there needs to be kind of a a people product fit, if you will, Mm -hmm. right? There's a certain kind of personality that thrives in a startup environment. It's not for everyone. And it really starts with that, um, and, in and, and making sure that you have the right talents and mm-hmm. personalities that fit into the kind of culture you want for your business.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny because I always use the word alignment and whenever it hasn't worked out with someone at Havens and, you know, over, I mean, I've been now doing some version of this for over a decade it's, it's not most of the time because of, you know, the things in the job description aren't getting done. You know, sometimes that's the case. Um, it's more a question of communication style, project management skills, um, willingness to listen, willingness to collaborate, you know the ability just to sort of integrate a lot of different information at once and make yourself a game plan and then communicate that game plan mm-hmm. and those are really hard things i think to test or interview for because people aren't like yeah i don't really i'm not that good at that you know like <laughs> no one knows and it and it and likewise i mean people who've left us you know have wanted more direction from me, let's say, or you know they've they've thought everything. I, who knows you know they wanted I don't know what they wanted. Um, we can go ask all of them. but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and how have you found you know because you said it's created early on, I think that that's very true. I think that a lot of founders, the culture is just them mm-hmm. a lot of times. Um, and then once the company starts to grow, you know, when you say, what is the culture here? They almost have a hard time verbalizing it. And if you ask, you know, all 20 people, let's say at the company, not everyone can say the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I guess as you've sort of grown and as the, as you know, the, the business has developed, are there any specific things that you're doing to make sure that you stay true to that
2: culture? It's such a good question. Um, and of course, it's something that's always evolving, um, mm-hmm. depending on... Or something
1: you saw at J. Crew, for instance, you know, or something that you saw at one of these companies that knew how to do it.
2: Yeah, I think um, what I have observed and something that I am um, kind of using internally is having very key um, what Amazon calls leadership principles and mm-hmm. just really specific traits about how someone just is, you know, that how they, um, operate as, um, a professional. Um, mm-hmm. there are very key things that I think kind of set them up for success in, in, um, Probably anywhere. Company, right. but, yeah, but also would be a good kind of fit and match the kind of culture we want to have. Right. And those three things that I look for that I think are very, mm-hmm. you probably can't um, teach. <laughs> that you, right. you either have or you don't have uh, tenacity, a bias for action, and the ability to problem solve. Mm. Um, to some extent, you can maybe coach problem solving, but I have seen these three traits, which to your point are very hard to interview for or to figure out if that person, you know, yeah. has or doesn't have, um, they're, they're at the top of my list mm-hmm. in terms of how a person should operate and the, the kind of, and it leads to the kind of culture I want to have, right? Again, this mm-hmm. like challenging, fast paced, exciting place to work where you get to ha- you know, have ownership over your projects and your decisions and- yep are able to have freedom of thought and to think big and, and um, to help solve big problems. Yep. No, that makes a lot
1: of sense. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about a couple of other operating principles before we get into the sales and the distribution and the ops and all the fun stuff. Great. We'll be right back.
0: Hi listeners. We wanted to let you know that heritage radio networks, Julia child fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January, 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you.
1: I'm back with Crystal Ung from Bowl Cut. Um, okay, so before the break, we were talking a little bit about, you know, building a culture, how you hold on to that culture through growth, through, you know, even just changing from like in-person work to remote work to hybrid to, you know, and you were talking about, um, you know, the operating principles that you had for the business. So, you know, making sure to hold on to what you learned very early with quality and care and no shortcuts, just bold cuts, which I love. And, you know, creating a culture based on leadership principles. Is there anything else that you feel like you grabbed onto, whether it was, you know, early on or at the companies that you worked at that seemed to be getting something right? um,
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing I actually felt was missing probably at every company was a sense of humanity and empathy. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that you can get from your direct boss, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But a company as a whole, it always felt um, like there was a disconnect there. Mm -hmm. And that to me is really important because I think for so long, work and life has always been separated mm-hmm. and that's just not reality. You know, yeah. it's intertwined, um, especially for a small business when there's so much going on, your yeah. working life is just intertwined. You're working from home, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so if it's so integrated into your life, then there needs to be another, um, kind of perspective to work, which is to, have this kind of extra sense of care, um, among people. Right. And, um, and that I've always felt was missing from any job.
1: Um, it's interesting. I remember I was telling someone, this was literally decades ago. And I was talking to a friend of mine who was a therapist and I was like, you know, it was something that was happening at work. I was not in this field. I was in urban development at the time. Mm -hmm. And someone had been sort of callous. I thought, with me, and you know, I said, I'm trying not to take it personally. And she's like, But you're a person, so it's hard not to take it personally because you are a person. And it always stuck with me because I find that the people that say don't take it personally are usually a the most sensitive to their own feelings, and be most likely the least sensitive to other people's feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, like Mm -hmm. it is personal because this whole thing, every business is built with people. I mean, Mm -hmm. unless it's not, and then I don't know what the hell's going on. But, you know, a lot of guests, I mean, I would say out of 219 episodes, probably 200 people talk about one of the key things being relationship building, Mm -hmm. whether you're building relationships with your suppliers or your team or your investors or the people that are selling your products, your you know, your buyers. And that without those relationships, the trust isn't there. And without the trust, the relationship is very fragile. Yes. So, you know, I think everything is personal. And, you know, I just always think it's funny because I'm always like, yep, there's another person saying, you know, I don't take it personally or don't take it personally. I'm like, but you are because, you know, you're a person. Um, so how are you, I mean, it's hard though, separately. I mean, I'll say as a founder, you don't want to be the parent, Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
1: you don't want to put yourself in a position of like being the mother hen to your Mm -hmm. whole team. Um, so there are boundaries and Mm -hmm. there are, there need to be for everyone to feel comfortable. So, how how do you kind of balance the? I want to be I want to foster a a community and a safe space where people can feel you know okay with each other and whether it's built on empathy and at the same time respect boundaries, keep it professional, you know, not be. Not blur those lines too much because then it becomes hard to give good feedback and to get good feedback. And
2: yeah, you know, yeah. It's such a good question. And I don't claim to have all the answers, of course. Right. And, and we're still kind of figuring things yeah. out as no, they go. You know, yeah. Um, but I I think ultimately you you touched on it and you said it so beautifully. it it's about trust um and and respect. So mm-hmm. I think having the trust um to be candid without Mm -hmm. things feeling personal or emotional yeah is the right balance and obviously easier said than done but i think even just being aware of it in itself and being able to talk about it openly um as a team um is the right kind of yeah. Is a step in the right direction. So yeah. it's very hard. Um, you know, I'm a new mom, and I feel like my like nurturing side is definitely coming. Yeah, out your hormones are pumping. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but at the same time, you're a business owner, owner. You have to make sure things are done. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, it's it's a hard it's a hard balance. Um, but ultimately, I think it's about respect and yeah. trust.
1: I, and I want to just add one thing to it because I found this very, very helpful, um, at the time when I, as part of the Chobani incubator, a couple of years ago, we did like an eight week DEI workshop, the, you know, mostly founders and, you know, so much of what gets people tripped up when things are awkward or there needs to be, you know, feedback or people just are disconnected is that we don't know how to broach it. You know, things build up and then they get really awkward. You know, sometimes there's just a team call and there's like a big old elephant in the room Mm. and no one really knows how to do it. And the thing that I took away from the program that we did was like, as the, and this isn't for you, this is just for listeners, like, As the person in position of leadership or, you know, to put it sort of like academically in the power position, right, where someone else is reporting to you, you are responsible for calling the elephant out in the room. You are responsible for saying something feels a little bit awkward or tense. I'm not quite sure what it is. I don't know if that landed the way that you meant it to or that I meant it to. Let's try to have a conversation about this. You don't have to know why or what, but that in the in the role of leader, that responsibility and onus is likely going to be on you. And I found that very clarifying for me because... That means that not only, like, do I feel like I should call, I should call it out. I don't necessarily have to call it out in the group, Mm -hmm. but, and, and you don't always have to have the words for it, right? You can just say, this felt weird. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure there's something, what do you think, you know? Um, because they're not likely going to bring it up to you unless they're, you know, really confident, really outspoken, not worried about their position or you not liking them or their manager not liking them or whatever it is. Um, I just thought that was a helpful little tidbit from Tafawa, I, I our that. DEI instructor. <laughs> that's, no,
2: that's super helpful. And yeah. um, I, I often try to think through the lens of a coach. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, um, to your point, you know, everyone has different ways to communicate and it's kind of your job as the manager, boss, owner to, um, kind of bring any issues to the forefront and Mm -hmm. to address things like the elephant in the room, Mm -hmm. um, because, there's varying degrees of um, comfort from, you know, different people. And awareness,
1: you know, some people are just
2: ho-hum, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, And cultural differences too. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: Yep. Yep, absolutely. Okay. So now we're going to talk about sales. (laughs) We spent a nice long time talking about culture and it's really interesting because I think, you know, I love when people come on and they've had experience at these other sort of bigger companies. My experience was very much limited to like, you know, I worked for a a pretty much like the New York State Development Corporation. And shockingly, we didn't have a whole lot of these best practices in place in the 90s. Um, and then the next thing I knew, I was running my own business, and I was like, huh, I should probably figure some of this stuff out, because I don't <laughs> think that actually applies. Um, so let's talk about... So everything kind of changed for you during COVID. Yes. Um, you decided, you know, something clicked. I'm going to make these sauces. And what was, what was step one for you? You know, I think a lot of people you know, they go from like, I had the Eureka on my friend's couch. And then look at me now. It's a da, 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 you know, but that first step is what's really, really hard for a lot of people. A, they're scared. B, they, where does one even go to produce a packaged good? How does, how do you know what to call your company? You know, where do you go to find people to help you build it? So what were some of the things that, you know, were your step ones?
2: Yes. Um, it's a good question. And I do get asked this a lot, um, because it is, the first step is almost the hardest, right? Because you overanalyze, if you're an overachiever, I mean, there's just so many things at play here. Um, and it can seem so daunting, um, to think about what you ultimately want to produce and the first step. So for, for me, um, you know, I had this idea during the pandemic and I would say the biggest piece to even getting to step one for me was making sure that I had the passion because Mm. it is such a hard business. You knew how hard it was. That, uh, oh yes, I was, um, I knew what I was getting myself into Mm -hmm. and, the opportunity cost was also much higher for me, um, at this point in my career. And so I really had to not only believe in the idea myself, um, but I needed the passion because that's what keeps you going. Um, and And were
1: you, I mean, was part of the decision-making process like, okay, you know, pre COVID, I mean, I think about the condiment sauce world and I remember talking, you know, and I don't have a a family history in food, right? And I, but I remember reading and talking a lot about global flavors and how the American palate was shifting and how Instagram sort of changed everything for food tourism and culinary sort of like curiosity and I, I think there was like a boom, you know, happening with brands really breaking out of ranch dressing and ketchup into these more savory flavors, more obviously, a hot sauce kind of revolution. Were you encouraged by all of that? Like, did you see, were you like, okay, this is an idea because it speaks to my soul and also there's a market that seems to be growing at a clip and my piece of it, you know, makes sense? Like, were were you... Yeah,
2: both. both. But I think um, initially it really started as a problem. So Mm. like most people in the world, I was at home cooking a lot more and Mm -hmm. I was using a lot of these traditional sauces at home. And I started to realize, wow, there's a lot of sodium and sugar, a lot of additives in these sauces. And I'm not feeling so great about using them multiple times a week and right. uh, naturally the entrepreneur in me, I just started to dive into it. It's like, there's got to be other options out there. Yeah. And at the time I was doing some consulting work at a venture studio that focuses in food and CPG. And I was seeing a lot mm-hmm. of activity in the better for you space. And I thought there's got to be a ton of small brands out there doing this, right? I just have to find them. And there literally were none. And I came across a research study that shows Asians and Asian Americans consume the most sodium out of all groups and a big Mm. driver of sauces and condiments. And that was Mm -hmm. my light bulb moment, connecting it to all of my dad's health problems. He has hypertension, Mm. pre-diabetic, most recently cancer, all these health problems. And Mm. I couldn't help him make better decisions in his diet. There were literally no alternatives. The only lower in sodium option is light soy sauce. And I just could not believe it and felt that I was in a pretty good position to adapt our family recipes into Mm -hmm. a line of sauces that could be good for you, um, that were not only inspired by traditional flavors, but that also brought to market this new Asian-American perspective that Mm -hmm. doesn't exist. Right. And the passion part for me was... At the height of the pandemic, we were seeing a lot of violence um, towards Mm, Asian Americans Mm -hmm. and driven by COVID, of course. And that, um, you know, working in my dad's restaurant in this small town, I saw firsthand how food can bridge cultures. And Mm -hmm. the people were so lovely who would come in and be so curious about our heritage, our culture, our history would wave to my dad in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. I thought there was no better time than now to start a food brand that could similarly help bridge cultures and Mm -hmm. drive empathy through food. Um, And to me, that was the passion part that really made Bowl Cut so compelling um, and really keeps me going to this day. And so... Step one. (laughs) Step one. Step (laughs) one was to, okay, very broadly knew that I wanted to create a line of sauces that could be staples in your pantry that were good for you, that you would feel great consuming. Mm -hmm. But what were those flavors going to be? Right. So the step one was actually just creating a ton of flavors and getting as much feedback as possible. To help mm. really hone in on um, what we should go to market with, Yep. and that's how it started. And we um, solicited help from a wide range of people, from you know home cooks to people who just never cooked at home and right. had no desire to cook, all the way to people who worked in restaurants. Um, because right. again, we really wanted to understand what would work and what wouldn't and what does that potential frequency look like and how are people using it and just needed some feedback ultimately yeah
1: i mean it's funny because we you know our sauces are you know they represent all different regions of the planet and we thought you know okay not everyone knows what tahini or romesco or chimichurri is but enough people do and they know what to do with it. And we were just so surprised at how much consumer education actually was necessary. Still, you Mm -hmm. know, I mean, there are still big questions around what do I do with this? What do I put it on? Where's the recipe? Were you surprised at the, I mean, did, did you
2: think, No, you make such a great point, like yes and no, right? Because you see all of these trends that show the American consumer is open to Mm -hmm. quote-unquote ethnic flavors and Asian global flavors are um, growing and on the rise and all these things. And you have an entire generation that grew up using sriracha across different types of cuisines. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly trends that point... um, to this exciting opportunity where there's mass appeal, right. Um, that uh, around flavors that were once seen as niche, but yet Mm -hmm. to your point, there's, is a lot of education that's needed. Our barbecue sauce is a great example of that. Um, I've done a lot of demos, events, et cetera. So I get to interact one-on-one quite a bit and when people taste the flavor of our charcho barbecue sauce, there's always this overwhelmingly, like surprise mm-hmm. excitement that right. they love it so much. It doesn't and- taste
1: like sweet bubba Ray. Right, right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So you've either had the flavor before because you grew uh-huh. up eating a chashu bao or right. you haven't. And you're so shocked that you love this and it and it's so versatile that you literally can put it on anything. You don't have to cook with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I offer ideas of how to use it, it's like their eyes get big and they get so excited. Yeah. Um, but it does require the education. Um, right. So that's definitely a really big hurdle
1: for us. And how are you tackling that? I mean, I, I, you, know, you know, we try to tackle it with as much content as possible um, because, you know, I can't talk to everyone mm-hmm. and we can't demo everywhere. And I think it's, you know, the jury's out a little bit on whether demos even really work for, or, you know, worth, I guess, whether they're worth the, the buck. Um, but are you, have you shifted anything or changed anything, adapted, you know, renamed anything like that, 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 you know, you kind of look back and you're like, yeah, that I probably over estimated this. Yeah, no, it's,
2: it's a challenge that's ongoing and Mm -hmm. we're trying different things in order to address that. But number one is content and recipes. That's the Mm -hmm. best way for people to understand how to use our products is just through recipes, right. And showing. So, um, we invest in content on social, uh, recipes, et cetera. But I think it'll, will, I think we'll, it'll require kind of, constant testing Mm -hmm. in this area because there's only so much content we can create and so much distribution of that content that can reach people, right? Right. And so when we continue to roll out in stores, I think at the point of purchase in stores is going to be critical in how we communicate the versatility um, and the education of our sauces. And this is something we're actively thinking through because, um, our packaging is like one element of that, right? Like how can we, from a messaging standpoint, packaging standpoint, how can we make it so obvious?
1: Well, we always go through, you know, I think, you know, drizzle on everything means nothing. (laughs) Drizzle on your, you know, tacos or steak sounds like, what if I have chicken? You know, and it's, it, my brain goes around and around and around in circles on this. You know, I I think that consumers are getting more comfortable with things outside of, you know, ketchup, mayo, and mustard. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I guess my question for you is like, so you started direct to consumer, I would imagine. Did you launch online?
2: We did, but, um, you know, having worked in marketing, I knew that D2C was only going to be- one channel. Yeah, one channel. Yeah. Um, it was always the plan to build an omni-channel business. Um, I knew that D2C would be very expensive, not exactly sustainable, especially for our type of product. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, initially, yes, launched D2C. Um, we're now in over 50 doors across the country and nationwide um, at Solar Top and we'll be at World Market next month and we'll continue to grow and scale through stores. Um, cool. And so I want to talk
1: a little bit about Solar because it's, you know, usually when I read it off, I'm like, you can find them at Sprouts. But you, I mean, it's kind of cool. Like you're taking a, a little bit of a different channel approach here. You're going where people cook, which is nice. Um, I mean, I'm wondering, is that consumer that's going because they like cookware and they plan on using their kitchens? Are they, was that a, I mean, I never had the opportunity to do any kind of alt channel at all because it was fresh,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but you know, even when I interviewed, like, Ashwara from Brightland, you know, she was talking about anthropology and Crate and Barrel. Like, they're, they're giftable. They're beautiful. People already are invested in, like, making a nice meal or having friends over. Like, there's something about that consumer that they're looking for a different experience, and they might be a little less price sensitive than the Kroger shopper, for example, have you, it, was that like a.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I adhere to the philosophy that when others are zigging, you want to be zagging. And Mm -hmm. I've always taken, um, kind of a different approach in thinking about distribution and want to be in some of these non-traditional, uh, retailers Mm -hmm. and kind of unexpected retailers. Um, but knowing Exactly who our customer is is helpful in that, right? So to um, to answer your question, we have kind of two primary segments, and one of those segments is that Sur La Table consumer. Um, they're right. cooking, they're foodies, they're excited by different flavors and different ingredients. They have dinner parties. I mean that is the Mm -hmm. consumer that loves our products. So we want it to be where that person is and it is also giftable. Right. Yeah. And so this led us to pursuing certain retailers that might be viewed as kind of non-traditional because the playbook has always been like, go natural sprouts, whole foods first. And then you do whatever next. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think
1: that playbook too is I've, been thinking a lot about that in the last couple of years. Like, I think all the playbooks seem to be out the window. I think, I mean, I'm going to adhere to the no shortcuts, bull cuts <laughs> philosophy because, you know, arguably those channels are incredibly expensive too. So when you have less money feeding the ecosystem from venture, you know, the, the margins for brands on those natural accounts by the time everyone's taken a bite out of the apple and they've done all their promoting and their marketing and all their stuff, they're very expensive. Mm-hmm. you know. I, so I think the playbook has changed because consumers are now not as channel um, loyal, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of research about people going from Walmart to Air One to Whole Foods to Target to, you know, like, um, in one week. Um, mm-hmm. But I think also brands don't have as much money to spend on the, you know, four OIs at UNFI and then the four different things that they're expected to do at these bigger national, you know, natural retailers. So is the, I mean, it's, it's a good, smart strategy and it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I would imagine it's probably a better margin at the end of the day.
2: Yeah. We're, and, and that's, I mean, that's the hard part though, right? Like there are trade-offs with every decision mm-hmm. and we're trying to grow thoughtfully and, um, and, and, are mindful of, um, being sustainable in our business. Right. Um, and so you could spend a ton of money to drive a lot of growth, um, but is that sust- sustainable at the end of the day? Um, yeah. And we're trying to take a more cautious um, approach here, but that comes at the expense of other things, right? So it, it's yeah. hard.
1: Yeah. I just finished my quarterly letter and you know, the, for us this year was very much up at the front very beginning about contribution margin and you know profitability. It was not about growth and it was not about top line. And mm-hmm. we've actually had to pull out of some of our accounts just to because I went in at the beginning of the year with a very fine tooth comb and I was like, huh, we're not really making any money on these people. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I guess it was cool to be able to say we were there. And the idea is that eventually that account would be profitable, but it doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. And not that every sales channel is going to have the same, you know, the same margin, but it's got to be, I mean, you got to have a bottom, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and yet when I was writing that letter, I almost felt like I would be letting everyone down because top line you know, was relatively, you know, flat this year. Mm -hmm. Now, what I wanted to say was we have fewer doors, we have higher velocity in every door that we're in. So that's actually kind of awesome. Yeah. That's huge. Um, Yeah. So I was able to sort of say we've maintained the, you know, (laughs) like -hmm. like, delete, delete, edit, clear, clean, you know, (laughs) um, but yeah, it's hard because we've been, I mean, the last several years we've been sort of indoctrinated into like this grow, 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 doors, 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 you know, how many accounts are you in? Like as if it matters if you're mm-hmm. in, you know, if you're in 50 killer stores, that's better than being in 500 negative margin stores. Right, right, you exactly. Know? yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going back, cause we skipped this whole thing and this is like what got me in the beginning, the marketing, the brand bowl cut, the, like the swag, the whole vibe of it. Like, was that, was that out of, was that early, you know, were you just like, ah, oh, this is it, you know, were you brand driven in a way from the get go?
2: Yeah. You know, and I think this goes back to just my time working in fashion and, mm-hmm what is so inspiring about working in that industry is the beauty in the art of fashion and um, how fashion is used as a means of self-expression and how it can communicate uh, to people about your values and your tastes. And I think Mm -hmm. more and more food, is starting to be that way, right? A way to express yourself. It's personal. Um, and what's more exciting is um, I think there's now more and more brands that can kind of cater to these changing tastes, um, right. changing values. And um, and so for me and for Bullcut, we... We're always excited by this opportunity to do things differently. um, Right. And in many ways, right? Whether it's the expression of the brand to the product itself. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, even to the distribution strategy. Yeah. 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 So, I I think having that, um, having creativity as a huge, priority. Right. And creativity again, in, in, in all different facets of the business, Mm -hmm. right. Um, can really lead to some exciting opportunities and helps to really differentiate ourselves too. Yeah. Before we get
1: to the quick fire and everyone listening, I would like you to chime in on whether you like this idea or not. For me, I'm having fun with it, but if it's not working for you, can you just maybe not like publicly, but just DM me on LinkedIn and say like, not a fan. Um, Okay. But before we get there, I have one more question, which is anything you've spent on in the last couple of years that you would like other founders and brands not to spend on because looking back, it was probably not a great investment. Ooh, really,
2: really good question um i think one thing i regret <laughs> spending any money on is the use of a consultant so uh, as a yeah servant- that's a great one <laughs> Crystal. I
1: mean, not all good consultants one. are
2: bad. It's no, changed. no, no. But this is good. This is good. Keep going. Yeah. But, you know, I've been a freelance consultant myself, and I like to uh-huh. think that I had added value. Um, but when you're a solo founder and you're stretched very thin, you can only do so much. You hire a consultant to help bring in expertise in a certain area of the business or help accelerate things. And if you hire the wrong consultant, it becomes a disaster. And so yep. I felt like. I definitely wasted a lot of time and money on a consultant. Um, and my advice is to trust your gut and to fire fast. Like you will never yeah. regret firing fast.
0: And yeah, I great. think i
2: let that linger way too long thinking I could, you know, change the scope right. or... Um, no, we want to prove manage- to them that our thing is worth
1: it and that we're serious. Yeah, I, I honestly think that's so much of the problem at the beginning, that we put ourselves into this deferential position of, you know, well, we're not going to be a crazy founder. You're the one with experience. So we're going to, you know, sh- let you lead and show you that we're worthy of your time.
2: Yes. It's like putting too much trust and kind of um, not trusting yourself enough. Yep yeah okay
1: quick fire so the way this works is I'm going to say a word and you're going to just stream of consciousness say what you think have another word it doesn't it can be a sentence it can be just a sound (laughs) (laughs) you could be like (laughs) um (laughs) okay so
2: here we go ready
1: yes okay
2: team um I, I wish I had a bigger team. <laughs> okay, perfect. Strategy. Oof. Um, o- ongoing, um, kind of o- always working on strategy. <laughs> Good. Market research. Um, uh, I would say necessary. Um, I would say necessary. <laughs> okay. Packaging, mm. um, fun, but also ever-changing. Website, ooh, needs work. <laughs> Social media, um, would love to spend more resources there. Mm. Twenty twenty-three, um. 2023 feels like we're finally making some strides. Oh, love that. 2024.
1: is going to be our year. Amazing. See, that was fun. Um, And Crystal, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about all this stuff with me. Um, It was just a really great conversation and really nice to meet you. So thank you. Nice
2: to meet you too. Thank you so much.
1: And Liam, as always, thank you for engineering today's show. Um, Like I always say, I could not do this without you. Um, So I'm super grateful to you and the folks at Heritage Radio Network and everyone listening. I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast.